Hello everybody, thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. Learning with Lowell is a podcast about biotech and any science-related fields, looking at the avenues of career development and success, and highlighting people doing great, great, amazing work in these industries. So, if you want to see how you can get involved in biotech, that's something that you're going to enjoy about this podcast, because that's going to be something every single episode. If you want to learn more about bios, bio biotech and other related science industries you're going to get that as well so it's got a little bit of everything for everybody follow us at learningwithold.com and i look forward to hearing your feedback thank you today we have gary he is a director in his normal day and a founder of a website called dna geeks we get into genomics uh, his career development why he got into genomics we go into health benefits of using genetic testing and that type of stuff. I mean, really, we get down into it, so I think everyone's going to enjoy this, especially if you've been wondering, like, these hot-button, hot-topic issues, like, oh, what is genomics, what is genetics, like, all of the things. You know, we get into it, and I think everyone's going to enjoy it, so tune in, sit back, enjoy your day, and listen to Gareth and I talk about genomics and his life. Thank you, everybody. When it comes to genomics, I was reading kind of like these, like, ta- like hot-button issues <laughs> before this, because I thought, like, oh, we could have a nice discussion about this. There was there were some questions on how we can use genomics and our like genetic data as a people to have better personalized healthcare. Like definitely, how would that go about, or like how would you see that like coming to fruition? Since you you have computational genom- uh, genomic P- PhD type uh, background. Yeah. So, so you can imagine. As someone who's not in genetics and also look, but interested and, you know, they're looking to get sequenced, you can look at this as as like an investment in getting your genome sequenced. So, yeah, it costs a couple hundred dollars to buy in and, and get your sequence done. But when you have that done and more and more people are doing this, the parts of the genome that we don't understand become less and less with the more with the greater power of having that study population to work from, if that makes sense. So as more people, especially from a variety of different populations with different types of genetic backgrounds are sequenced, um, then we have essentially way more statistics and way more uh, profiles to compare uh, one person of interest to, to say, you know, whether you would have a particular trait or not. Like for, like, for example, if the traits for having a certain type of earwax were radically different across um, many different types of human populations, even down to a specific country, like they have different types of earwax, if you only have one country's population sequenced but and you're from across the world, then their data isn't that helpful to you, right? So, like, you could never use the same mutations for earwax in your DNA as they do to predict your physical outcome for your earwax type. Right? So the more people who are sequenced, especially when they're of similar genetic background to you, the more useful that information is. So it's kind of like a, like a, like a relation frequency. It's kind of like if someone were to ask you the same question over and over again, like it kind of like pops up as more meaningful, especially if you have a lot of background noise and the background noise is having our DNA, which is very extensive, like there's a there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could look at it as well. Like when you have lots of people who are similar to you, and you want to test 
you know, there's dip, but you see there's differences among this similar population. You have a much stronger signal to noise of what could be causing the differences versus a like cohort of very different individuals already. Talking about differences between people, I think I was reading. I'm trying to remember the article. I'm not going to remember it. I will not shame myself this way. But uh, <laughs> they were saying that there there was like a, a very small species of like apes in the Congo that had more genetic differences between like the interspecies of them. So like if you were to take like a random male and a random male, they had mm-hmm. a greater genetic variance compared to the average human. And so like that, they were using that to suggest that there was like this great famine or something like I think 20 or so thousand years ago. And there's only like a couple thousand humans left. And so they are they saying they might be saying that each ape population has kind of grown in its own without much interbreeding, right? So over the course of time, due to their sparse population, they've kind of developed in very different ways genetically. I believe that's the qualification. Is there a great difference between the average human and another average human? Like, granted, those are two averages, so I assume they would be kind of like muted down to be similar. But is there a great genetic difference between people? in relation to other species that we found? Um, so, I mean, the person-to-person difference is, in humans, is, um, you know, not, it's hardly anything, especially, e- even, like, a very genetically ill person versus another one. It's not different. But the... It, it's, it's hard to answer this question. Like, phenotypically, or if I were to count raw very... I don't know. How, how, how's the best way to answer this? I'm just I'm just going to go ahead and say no. Like there's there's hardly any difference between individuals of of humans. Will that ever become a problem? Like will there ever be so little difference that we start getting more not as good genetic ramifications from that to use a completely non-technical way of asking that question? Are you, are you asking is this the eugenics question that you're trying to get at? Uh, people always jump straight to there when they're talking about <laughs> Yeah, you know, pruning for certain variations and things like that. It's it's very hard to eugenic humans, doesn't it? Like we get for for selective breeding, we get like it takes like as little as two to three like interbreedings before we have some type of weird genetic stuff going on. Where like lab lab mice, you can have three hundred like three hundred generations of inbreeding before there's any like weird genetic defects that really start popping up. Well, it happens, and humans have lots of issues with you know inbred. Inbred diseases. I mean, part, there's still parts of the world today that are you know, heavily ravaged by uh, diseases from extremely long-term inbreeding between cousins or closer. Um, and actually, the way that those diseases happen is uh, you get what's called runs of hom- homozygosity. So normally, when you're uh, interbreeding with someone who's not a relative, you know, there's DNA recombination that happens, and you get more heterozygosity, heterozygous or different from each other regions between your pairs of chromosomes. And what that does is it actually mitigates what could be possibly harmful mutations. But when you're inbreeding, you get these runs of very similar sequences. And so if you, and over time, eventually you'll accumulate these disease-causing mutations without the uh, mitigation of different DNA from outside your family, if that makes sense. So 
I think it makes sense. It's basically saying like when you have a, a larger pie and you were to take you grab randomly from the pie and then smush it into a different pie, that like the chances that two portions of the pie that would taste really bad together lining up is very small. But if you keep using smaller and smaller pieces of the pie because the pie is not genetically diverse, then the chances of you having two types of the pie that do taste really horrible meshing when you eat it uh, increase to use like a pie as the analogy. <laughs> I think it's pretty close. Basically, basically what I'm saying is that each family probably has a load of potentially harmful mutations. And if that family is inbreeding with each other, eventually those are going to line up in harmful ways. But if you're bringing in outside recombination, then those harmful variants may never be expressed in a harmful way because you have a different copy of the non-harmful DNA because you have two copies of each chromosome as well. And if anyone wants to see a good example of that, you can look at all the, the monarchs in England. I mean, not in England, but they are a pretty good example of this. In Europe, like the Habsburgs were just marrying their cousins at a certain point. I think it was in World War One where like most of the people were like second cousins that were in leadership roles in your in Europe, or I think maybe yeah, monarchs had big issues with that. I mean, they had issues with uh, hemophilia, right? From their yep. Yeah, well, for people who are listening, and if I remember this correctly, hemophilia is where they bleed. They, they bleed and they won't stop. Like they can't coagulate blood. Is he... Right. Probably, probably the most common outcome of inbreeding. Um, that we see today is me mental illness, so things like schizophrenia, um, all of those bad things can come about pretty easily from inbreeding. How, how few people would you need? Like if the entire world was wiped out or we'd had to like restart a colony somewhere, how few people could you get by with like if you had like the most advanced technology? I, believe, I believe the number is the thousand, yeah, for a minimum starter population. There's a book called Steven Stevenson or Stevenson or Sevenson by Neil Stephenson where there's like seven women and they kept breeding with each other through buntings or something. I don't know. It was, it was a weird plot, <laughs> but they made like billions of people. So that's, but a thousand. All right. That's, that's, I mean, there's like 8 billion of us. So let's hope that we don't get down to a thousand. Um, so moving, moving away from eugenics and inbreeding, not that they're not interesting conversational topics, though I will note that eugenics started in America by chicken farmers, and then it moved to Germany. But I will stop that before someone destroys my account. So what are some things that impassion you when it comes to genetics and figuring out more about what makes us? Like, what are, what are some things that you're, that if, the, for the people who are listening, what, what are some things that would really surprise them to know? I think a lot of people are, are surprised at just how much ancestry and, you know, and relationship knowledge you can get from DNA, like relationships as in you're related to this person as a second cousin or a first cousin or an unknown sibling, something like that. And also at the rich history that we've sussed out that's attached to your Y chromosome and your mitochondrial uh, DNA and like using say so when you get your Y chromosome sequence we can assign what's called a haplogroup to you and using your haplogroup you can find out all kinds of things your relationship to certain famous historical figures 
uh, your ancestors' migration out of Africa, for example, which is probably one of the coolest things you could ever learn about your DNA. And that's a big part of your human origin story. Uh, and you can learn that using your from your father's side, using your Y chromosome, and from your mother's side, using your mitochondrial DNA. I think I was reading a while ago, and if this is wrong, it would be good to have this corrected. It's like the Y chromosome I was hearing is like breaking or like not copying as well or something like that. And like in something like 50,000 years, it's going to be a problem or, or maybe I was misremembering that. Is that a- so there's a there are some people who are saying that the Y chromosome is shrinking. That's true. Um, as for not copying the same way, that's also true. And that's why we can uh, measure lineage via the Y chromosome for males. It's because uh, its rate of change is very low compared to the other chromosomes because you only pass your father you obviously your mother doesn't have a y chromosome so it's passed down from father to father father to son but yeah so what does that mean or father to, yeah father to son who then becomes a father you you got it you got the idea <laughs> but um so what does it what does it mean that it's like people think it's having like what what would what would come of like what would be the end result of what people are are, are saying on this the end result of the shrinking Y chromosome? Yeah, does like guys go away and we all come women? I mean, what what would happen? Who knows? Maybe maybe that is it. No one knows. There's no theories. I I mean, the theory is obviously if you have no Y chromosome, then we all become women, right? I mean, that would be my genetic guess. How did we get the Y chromosome? Like, I would I would think that like, I mean, there's always like kind of like a guy and a girl. Well, there you know, I mean, there's other types of reproduction, but. Like why is this is this uniquely I don't like going down a line maybe you're not, <laughs> not your 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 field but why is it specifically in humans where the Y chromosome is shrinking or is it across all species I would love to be able to answer this question because now I have it as well but <laughs> I do I it is not in my field so I cannot answer it I'm writing this down for people who are listening we will figure this out <laughs> across species variant okay well this is half the fun you know like. I think it's important to note that, like, smart people who study things, like, they don't have all the answers. They just, like, it's a framework for getting the answers, which is, which is important. Um, all right. Well, there, there's one question and hopefully. All right. We'll, uh, I'll do some research. And if, I don't know, if you're interested, you can do some research. <laughs> we'll come together and see if we can figure <laughs> it out. Uh, all right. So mo- moving on. What, what originally got you into genetics? Like, for, for me, I liked, I liked making super quail. Like, when I was in high school, I made, super quail by breeding the, the biggest ones together so by the end of the semester or year or what have you they instead of being like the size of your fist they were the size of a chicken and so that was sure. kind of fun for me <laughs> but like what what's the thing that like got you interested in geno- uh, genomics and geno- uh, genetics in sp- uh, particular yeah so uh, I, I'm, an, I'm an interesting case in my family in particular because everyone in my family is a computer scientist but my my first love had always been biology, although my exposure to computer science and, you know, being a bit of a maker slash hacker, whatever you want to call it, uh, was pretty high. And so I'd always been doing computer projects on my own in school, although I was a biology major. And when I was coming to the end of my undergraduate, I was like, man, what am I going to do? And it was around that exact same time, my, would, my would-be advisor sent an email to listserv that described exactly what this new and budding field of genomics was in circa 2009, 2010. And it sounded awesome. It was like 
we can now get the ATGC resolution of your DNA onto a computer. And when it's on the computer, you can do all sorts of cool things with it. And that 50-50 split between biology and computer science was like right up my alley. So I jumped on it pretty fast. I imagine you had, I mean, you have a PhD, of course. So I don't know why I haven't been referring to as doctor, but now you absolutely do not have to do that, <laughs> and please don't. <laughs> I don't like if if you have a a PhD, like don't isn't that kind of like the the perk? Like you go around, like like you you meet someone, and they're like, oh hi hi Gareth, and then you're just like, it's Doctor Gareth to uh. you. <laughs> the only thing that says doctor is uh, when people want money, so that's what it says in my credit card bills. <laughs> well, maybe you get preferential treatment when you go to like a restaurant or something. But so you you took a lot of schooling. And how much did you learn in school versus your own inclination, like your own interest to learn? Like was school just kind of like so, a framework for your learning or did you actually learn the principal amount of what you know from school? So probably the most magical part about being a grad student and, you know, people are always like, well, if you take a PhD, especially if you're in the tech industry, like you lose like so much amount of money per year because you get so underpaid versus going straight in industry. Um, the magical part of being a grad student is that you actually get paid to learn. So I learned an enormous amount and, you know, it's, it's learning in something that you're extremely interested in. It's, it's learning something really without having any uh, kind of like super corporate interest at heart. There's something really pure about that particular pursuit of knowledge as a grad student. What are some of the things that you... I mean, with that type of kind of like blank check that you worked on or that you learned that you dug into. So um, basically there are many nuances to bioinformatics and, you know, the statistical analysis of genetics that you get into. Um, The first thing you have to do in order to work with any of that data is to learn your bioinformatics pipelines, how you go from the sequence to, uh, generating certain types of data on mutations and building certain types of data tables. And with for that, you're going to be learning R and Python and a whole lot of other, and how to use a whole lot of other cool programming libraries. And then you have to learn a fair amount of statistics slash math to um, do the studies you want to do. And then on top of that, you actually also need to have a pretty good awareness of how certain wet lab procedures, wet lab being, you know, when you sit on a bench and, you know, run a polymerase chain reaction and other types of methods uh, function because the, those types of procedures actually have an effect um, on sequencing in particular PCR. You get what's something that's called PCR amplification bias. And if you don't know what that is and you have it, then serious issues can arise in your analysis. So you learn all kinds of cool stuff about both the wet lab and the dry labs. Were you able to apply it to any specific topics? Uh, yeah. So uh, my, my first paper was for genotyping repeating sequences of DNA. So um, to put it in as a, an example of a disease that has a repeating sequence is Huntington's, for example. There's a type of repeat, and it repeats itself so many numbers of times and the number of times that it's repeated indicates uh, whatever particular trait outcome there might be. And those things are really cool. And at the time, they were difficult to genotype. So uh, I wrote a piece of software that 
uh, genotype them from your computational genome. And then after that, I kind of I kind of realized that you know there's an ivory tower of knowledge that existed. And so my advisor and I were like, well, why don't we, you know, build a way for people to jump into bioinformatics and build their own pipelines and never have to worry again about whether or not they're using the right tools for the job. And that eventually actually became my thesis. It's a, it was a website that existed um, called, uh, around until about 2014 called bioplanet.com. And on that website, we had a way for people to run their data in collaboration with the NIST's Genome in a Bottle program, which was a standardized set of genomes for you to run benchmarks against. And after you did that on BioPlanet, you could then compare your benchmarks to other people's tool sets to make sure you had it tuned for whatever you know false positive rate or discovery rate that you wanted. And there's different types of applications in genomics where you either want a you know highly sensitive uh pipeline or you want a highly specific pipeline with respect to what kind of mutations you want are there any startups or companies working in in that type of field that really inspire you so yeah i mean nowadays um man there's so many companies nowadays and i've worked myself for some pretty great ones um i have to give a shout out to a company obviously that i work for now called insito making consumer genetic tests um pretty similar to 23andme and ancestry also both pretty amazing companies in uh what they offer and yeah i mean it's just it's just cool when you find a when you're able to bring research and apply it to someone and actually deliver any kind of you know actionable or useful or interesting result. Well, I've never used 23andMe or any of those things. What what would be the benefit? Like for people who are listening, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It seems like, granted, it, I think it used to cost something like $10,000 to do genetic testing. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think the original whole genome might have been around 10K. But nowadays, you can get all the useful stuff that we know of for you know, a couple hundred if you go with helix you can get it for like if at the right sale time you can get it for between 30 and 50 which is absolutely insane to me what type of what type of useful data would i get from that other than you know that maybe coming from like your ancestry what would there be anything that i'd be able to use to improve my health like oh i am some genetic thing and if i i don't know is there any, <laughs> anything anything applicable other than just like a curiosity yeah, so 23andMe is starting to release some pretty applicable health stuff. I mean, all right, this is this is actually another like dark side of consumer genetics right now because it's literally so easy to go online and search for certain types of mutations and studies that may or may not be well peer reviewed or legitimate that you can just bring your DNA test for you know looking great in the sun to the masses and no one can really call you out on it, but but you're still selling. I mean, that stuff gets weird, but there's still a lot of really useful things um, in diet and in uh, particularly pharmaceutical responsiveness drug tests. 
and in Ancestry that are all great, great to have. I, I in particular like drug tests, so that is my jam. That's what I'm interested in. Ancestry, also really cool. So what about drug testing in relation to the genomic stuff interests you? Um, probably the direct applicability of it. So, I mean, imagine that you're about to go on, you know, a prescription for antidepressants or anti-anxiety, or you're about to take a painkiller of some kind, or you're about to take warfarin. There's a lot of genetic data out there that can support one type of drug versus the other. And I mean, that's that's just important to know, I mean, because you want to mitigate as much risk as possible up front. Cardiac genetics also, if we're talking medical, cardiac genetics also has a lot of great work behind it. I imagine, what is it, what's the stuff that they give you to like knock you out so you don't feel pain during surgery? It's like uh, an, uh, anesthesia, there you go. Yeah. A- asked and answered. The I think, I imagine that that would be helpful because like anesthesia is one of those things that they don't really know why it works, they just know it works, uh, if, my, if my memory serves. So then I imagine knowing... Because there's always those like those horror stories like waking up during surgery. So I imagine if you had like the specificity down to you're, you're literally the building blocks of who you are that you might that could be an area that would be applicable. Oh, definitely. A, a lot of the genes that control your responsiveness to drugs are things like yeah, you know, how fast do you metabolize whatever drug that is, and depending on the speed of your metabolism of that drug, I mean your responsiveness increases or decreases. So yeah, those are types of things that you can help dodge. So will there ever be like this? I think there's been these debates about when it comes to your online stuff. I think we mentioned this earlier, even that Mm -hmm. some of someone's online searches were used to hunt down the bad guy in Austin. But like, there's like this concern about your data versus your metadata and how your metadata can be used in this situation to kind of detect the similarities across populations. Is there any concern about, is there any concern at all about the, the privacy of your DNA? Like, will that ever matter? Like, it's not like a social security number. Like, does it it matter if your DNA information gets out there other than what the companies can use it for and make money off of it or? Sure. I mean, fortunately there's, there are laws in place that, uh, prevent like say insurance abuse of your DNA information to deny you based on, you know, a particular thing. But, um, is there a reason to just want to have your data private? I think so. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, just willingly let you download their genomes as well. And that's their choice. I just think that there should be like, like, I guess I'm saying that, Obviously, no one wants to just have their genome out in the open, even if nothing, even if, if nothing can necessarily come of harm from it, because obviously, you know, you're already a fully expressed human and all. But well, wouldn't there be a benefit? Isn't that kind of what 23andMe does? Like they, like you pay for the test and you get some like neat factoids, but then they take your DNA data and then everyone else's DNA data, then they get better results from that over time. And yeah, definitely, and I, I think that. That's, you know, that's not a bad thing. Like, wouldn't you want to pay a couple hundred bucks, then have your results continuously improve as more people sign into the system? I, th- I think I would want that. Well, I guess it depends if I get it for free or if I have to pay an updating fee. So far, they haven't made people pay an updating fee, so. Oh, there you go. Then that's a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> get, it, get it while it's cheap. And then ride the wave high. So, so we t- kind of talked about your backstory, like uh, where your interest 
to get into genomic computational. I said that backwards. Computational genomics. It's okay. <laughs> I I have problems with my English too. I get I get excited and say things like pharmaceutical responsiveness when I'm trying to find the right words. <laughs> what? So we got your past. We got some of the things that you're interested in. What are you, what have you been working on now? Like, what are some things that people would be excited to hear about? Yeah. So I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but with the uh, with the amount of genetic tools and databases that are out there these days, it's super easy. Or well, genomics knowledge has become more popular than ever. Like things like CRISPR are just so cool that they're like in the news like every day. So Everyone's starting to know the word CRISPR. Um, things like DNA are now more popular. Just literally the word DNA is now more popular than you know it's ever been. It's something that's ingrained in the curriculums. Everyone knows ATGC. And now that Ancestry is like selling a millions of kits per year, which is like which they've sold more kits than has ever been sold in the last year or something insane like that. Like people are just becoming more life science savvy, like in general. And, you know, like Blue Planet and documentaries of the wildlife from the wildlife biology side have started to really take off as well. And so one of the things that I've been working on, kind of realizing that there's been this explosion of just life science in general, particularly to the consumer, is DNA Geeks. It's a store called DNAgeeks.com. At the moment, I mean, we're selling merchandise that is just fun and, and cool stuff that talks about our, our special niche of science and genetics in particular. And it, we also try to use the site to support good science writers and science initiatives that we believe in, like the GNXP blog and um, some other guys. And uh, But we want it we to also be more than that. T-shirts and fun stuff is just the outreach part and like the first cool step. Eventually we want to DNA geeks to be a place where people go to, you know, see what the latest and coolest things are in biohacking and DIY biology and to become like, you know, we want to find something that eventually becomes like the Arduino of life science. Of course, it'll probably be something that the Arduino, you know, connects to because that's just how it goes. But <laughs> Arduino. Uh, so, People who make like hobbyist, hobbyist roboticists, anyone who's done like an at home automation project has probably heard of it. It's like a little tiny computer, kind of like the Raspberry Pi. In fact, in fact, that's probably the best analogy. Raspberry Pi is, and an Arduino are fairly similar, just slightly different in computational power. Have you done any like garage, <laughs> garage things of your own? Um, in, in biology, not really. I mean, the closest I've been done in biology to a garage project are certain types of, of petri dish cultures. Um, computationally, I've made a few different search engines just for fun and for personal use. But as but in terms of like injecting jellyfish genes into my body, no, I, I haven't done anything like that. I feel like if you're able to do that and you're alive right now, we should probably study you. I don't think anyone can live <laughs> from that. Well, you'd be surprised. I brought that. That's a specific example, actually, is something someone's done. Really? No. Do they live? <laughs> yeah, he is alive. Nothing happened. 
Are you saying like he just kind of like ate jellyfish, or are you saying like he actually? It was. I believe it was an injection. I can't. I don't remember it that well, but I know he was like trying to glow or something using jellyfish. I'm gonna take a wild guess and say he he probably didn't do it right because don't people die from that? Like if you do like the wrong thing with your genetics, don't. Like, I remember there was a case a couple maybe like ten years ago when it, like genetic engineering and tinkering like that was really new and people would die if it didn't take. So like, isn't there, I feel like that's dangerous. Don't sure. It is dangerous. I mean, so m- most of the time, like you'll do that and like, you know, nothing's going to happen. Like you'll just, it'll just fizzle and you know, there won't be any outward appearance of change and stuff like that. And that's what's happened so far, fortunately. But un- unfortunately, like there's been clinical trials with things like, uh, like people have tried to do previous in previous iterations of the CRISPR protein. They've tried to do uh, clinical inclusion of genetic engineering, and sometimes that hasn't gone well. Some people get cancer because it's just not specific enough to what you want to change, and you know those are very bad things that can definitely happen if you start injecting yourself with gene changing uh, chemicals. Is it? Is it true? I don't think I was reading this a while ago. Once again, I do not know if this is your your wheelhouse, but that, like, from a genetic standpoint, that the longer you live, that basically if humans live long enough, like, we'd all get cancer. Is that real? Is that, like, a real thing? So it's it's always a risk. And, you know, as you get older, your, like, mutational, your, your load of mutations that could potentially cause cancer increases. So your probability gets higher, that's for sure. Isn't that like that I think that's one of the big things that people are working on nowadays is to like stop that process because what we think what we think of as age isn't the passage of time but rather our cells like making copies poorly and like the teler- telomerase telomerase if I'm saying that telomerase. Am I saying telomeres? So there's been a lot of studies that correlate the length of your telomeres to basically your longevity. And so as they get shorter, like, you know, maybe you'll die, but, uh, it's not a field that I follow closely and I'm not sure what kind of breakthroughs have been made. I know there's all kinds of supplements and Nobel prize winners backing things like the Elysium vitamin that haven't been shown to really pan out yet. Don't sue me for slander, but <laughs> it would be slander if you if you the difference between slander and libel, I think, is that one is spoken and the other is written. But uh, <laughs> I don't, if that's true, I don't know why I know it. I know I know that Elysium is currently suing some other company, not over not over slander, but they're they're doing some lawsuits right now. I'm I'm surprised that a Nobel Prize winner would say a statement that isn't backed by science. But then again, we don't know anything. I don't know about this topic, and I don't want to. They say they say a lot of things, and uh, then you eventually get companies like Theranos and stuff that happen. Have you are you familiar with Theranos? Yeah, I thought that it was from if you like investigate a little bit more, like it was only like like a manager at a plant screwed up. Like the technology itself is sound, I think, but like the, it was like executive people didn't manage it. If I if I remember correctly, like it, it's it's basically dead. Like it, it got screwed up too much. But I think it like originated with someone not keeping things sterile or like doing something stupid. Sure, it may have the, uh, but the end result is that you know it wasn't performing 
the task it was given and it was misconstrued as well. So all of those are not good for business. I bet she was, she, I think at one point in time, she, like the company is worth billions of dollars. Like, you know, if you could like cash out and run away real quick. <laughs> cash out and run. <laughs> Cause that's not a red flag. Yeah, but you're already in a different state. So what, what are they? <laughs> I'm just thinking if there are any, so for people who are listening and they want to learn more about genetics, if they want to, they're like, oh, well, I've heard of 23andMe. I've heard about all these other things. And I'm curious, are there any accessible books they'd recommend? Like if, if you could be like, I I give you this book, read this book, you will oh, like yeah. genetics. Is there anything like that? If you're looking for the best 101 genetics, like you don't know anything about genetics, but you want to, the best hands down 101 book is The Cartoonist's Guide to Genetics. That book is fabulous. Is it the one that's like a kid's book? It, it's, I mean, it's a like a gigantic comic, but man, is it informative. I love that book. Is that like the one you tend to gift to people if they're interested? It, it is. It's the one also that if anyone asks me for this type, kind, kind of recommendation, like that's that's what I'll say. Are there any other books or any other type of things? Yeah. So once you've got your genetics chops up and you want to start getting into bioinformatics, you know, the computational and working with human genomes on the computer, um, uh, a guy named Conrad – oh, my God, I'm going to slaughter his last name. And I'm, I'm, I kind of know him, so it's a little embarrassing. But Conrad Karsiewski, but he's written a book called Personal Genomes, and it's kind of like a textbook for doing you know, computational genomics. I'm taking notes if you wonder what I'm doing. Exploring Personal Genomics by Joel Dudley and Conrad J. Karsiewski. So you're a programmer guy. When... There's like this open source thing where people can go online and kind of like work on projects to like beef up their experience and get into a company by sh- well one just to have fun like that's just like a great avenue to work with other people when you have extra time to build something but then like sometimes mm-hmm. they can use it as like a case study to what they can develop is there anything like that for this field uh like a coding competition like bootcamp kind of website uh, no, I was thinking more like a like the open source like GitHub. I think it's like the normal one that people talk about, like where you can kind of go there sure. and work on projects. Oh, I see, I see. No, I mean we just use GitHub or Bitbucket. Yeah, I mean it's all computer code. There's no reason to. We don't need a dedicated computational genomics GitHub. Are there any projects that you're working on on there that people could like kind of tag in if they are so interested? Um, open source projects, I. Haven't worked on one in a bit. I'm actually working on bringing a previous project in science publication open source right now, which I might release, but no. But I mean, if you're just looking for really awesome bioinformatics programs to join in GitHub, there are so many because, because it stems from academia, right? So, and academics are all about open source for the most part, especially in genomics. I mean, if you just go to the GitHub search bar and type in genomics, you'll bring up all kinds of cool stuff. Well, sweet. Then I will have those in the show notes for people who are interested. Because that's one of the things that I think, I think there's like this internal barrier people put up for like reasons why they don't do things. And with the advent of the internet, (laughs) that bar, like that wall should be very easy to permeate. So like if you're interested in something, like go online. And even if you don't understand something, I'm sure there's someone there who you could ask a question to. And I've, Maybe like nine out of ten times, 
people answer kindly and then you have like that one out of ten that maybe the guy's just grumpy and he or a girl is grumpy <laughs> and they need like a hug or something like that. But like when it comes to insofar as my limited experience is, most people are <laughs> very open to educating and Definitely. talking about because it's like, you have to imagine like they're online in an arena in an area that they go to for fun, right? So if sure. you, it's like everyone has something that they do for fun uh, that yeah they talked about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll I'll also say that like if you're if you just want to like get online and like follow scientists' thoughts and maybe even interact with them, Twitter is surprisingly amazing for that. There's so many great scientists just like openly discussing things on Twitter. Any, any recommendations? Uh, sure. I, my friend uh, Razib Khan, who doesn't strictly tweet about biology, but is a great mind in ancestry genetics and has had a hand in building most of the mainstream ancestry apps there are today. Uh, he's a great follow. Um, David Middleman, also involved more in the medical side of genetics. Spencer Wells, uh, author of a book called The Journey of Man, which is a fantastic ancestry book on you know human origins in Africa. And, uh, and there, there are so many, there's even blog posts on the best science Twitters to follow. All right. Excellent. How do you spell Razib Khan? I spell, I assume Khan is K-A-H-N, but like, I, I couldn't guess Kazib. Uh, Razib is R-A-Z-I-B and Khan is K-H-A-N. All right. I was close, but not really. All righty then. So then if people wanted to kind of. Well, one one question before we kind of wrap this up, because I think we're doing well in time, but I always like to be respectful of it. What are some things that outside of genomics, outside of all these things, and this is, I feel like I should be asking this question in my podcast more often because of the responses I've been getting in my recent episodes are hilarious. Um, <laughs> like there's one, I'm going to cut this out, but there's one that is just, you would not expect it. They're like, they're like the, the people I talk to, are uh, uh, once I added maybe a timestamp one oh three, but the they're on the cutting edge of like this uh, type of technology in this biotech industry. And then I was like, hey, what are you guys like? What is your guilty pleasure? And they were just like, it isn't so intense that I told them that they do like. There's no way that it's getting cut out. <laughs> it's like it's not gonna. It's like a fixture. It's it's, it's too fantastic. I, I'll, I'll link it to you. Like it is. It is. It's gonna be. It's not up yet, but it's like it's it's crazy. <laughs> so um. Do you have any guilty pleasure type things like that? Um, sorry, like what exactly? Well, I'm trying not to be specific on purpose. Like, are, do you have any guilty pleasures that are not related to genetics per se that would be that you're passionate enough about that you wouldn't feel embarrassed to talk about? <laughs> uh, hmm. Let's see. So, a lot of people have said that. This is actually related to DNA geeks and actually this guilty pleasure spawned to this side hobby as well. But a lot of people said that, you know, it was kind of silly to like design t-shirts, but I like coming up with funny designs and, you know, sitting around with my friends and just like spitballing funny stuff. I mean, that's fun to me. And it's not, you know, it's not like hardcore science research, but. Well, what's, what's, what, what's one that would, do. People, would people like that really strikes to you? One particular design? Yeah. So the ones that I love on the website are the most niche ones. There's a particular one on the site called Delbrook and Deliria, and it's a picture of a slot machine. And the slot machine says, are you feeling lucky? 
And then inside you have the, uh, some slot machine icons as well as the sheep and stuff. But it alludes to a famous experiment by uh, Delbrick and Luria that's found that bacteria still accumulate mutations in the absence of selective pressure. So it's a certain thing. Basically, are you feeling lucky? Because you're gonna, you might randomly get an awesome mutation that is advantageous somehow. That's interesting. Are are bacteria the only other? Are they, are they the only ones that have been found to have that? No, everything does. Yep. Okay, so then they used it on bacteria and then extrapolated out. Right. Yeah. People use things like yeast and and bacteria and other small model organisms and worms to you know find very basic foundational principles in genetics and then you take those discoveries and you apply them to more complex organisms like humans and hopefully find something really cool yeah it's hard to experiment on humans they tend not to like it the <laughs> they, they squirm too much and there's so many uh you can't put them in a lab and keep uh can't keep them in the fridge well i was uh, i was studying neuropsychology and at university and it was an upper division course and they talked about how they were controlling for variables but for when they would cause lesions on rats' brains to see how their their bodies would adapt to to certain things that they were trying to do, and they they didn't keep the light levels constant, and one was accidentally kept into the dark, kept, like was put in the dark when they first got the lesion, and because of that, they were able to reset quicker to adapting, which is really weird, like. It was completely accidental. Like the, the the power went out for a couple of days during like this narrow <laughs> window of something happening, and they were like, "This data does not add up. All the other ones have not had this problem." So That's hilarious. Yeah, like you know, if, one you can't lesion humans; they don't like that. But two, <laughs> like I, I, people like too much control over their their environment, which makes sense. But so for people who who want to kind of follow you and learn more, I don't know. Do you have like a Twitter where you kind of like? talk about genetics at all because that'd be fun i'd follow it i have a twitter i will say that it's a lot of like you know (sighs) propeller head genomic stuff like i'll tweet about some algorithm or like some ai thing but i do have a twitter and you can ping me at it it's just gareth my first name 862 gareth 862 that's my twitter handle propeller head is that a that's a term yeah, it's a term for like when something's like highly mechanical or like, you know, it's not, it's not uh, general, so to speak. It's just really nerdy genomic stuff. Okay, you used a really niche nerdy word to describe a really niche something nerdy. really niche nerdy. Yep. <laughs> that's that's how you know you've gone too deep. You got got to get out too of the deep. matrix. Um, but yeah, so that's that's fascinating. Then. Which is a good thing. Like if you're if you're in a niche, like go completely niche. Because then when people like follow you, because I'm going to literally later today, I'm going to follow you. Um, they can get like that exposure to it that they wouldn't normally get. Because like your passion is going to drive you to areas that no one else will see. So that's fantastic. Cool. Uh, any other areas that people can kind of like follow? I know there's a DNA geek that we've referenced throughout the podcast. That yeah, that's the that's just the Twitter handle DNA geeks. I mean that stuff is. DNA Geeks tweets, you know, really funny stuff in genetics, as well as the t-shirts and designs that we come up with. I suggest it for a laugh. Um, I've shouted out to some scientists. Um, probably one more guy that I would shout out is Eric Topol, and his last name is T-O-P-O-L. He tweets out some awesome highlighted scientific studies in medicine. 
Awesome. I will follow all these people. Because, yeah, every, everyone consistently across the board, everyone is saying, t- weirdly enough, you know, granted, like our president, for people who are in the United States, our president tweets a lot, you know, positive, negative, like like Twitter is a really good communication tool. But I, I'm very surprised as the at the commonality that a lot of scientists are talking on Twitter. So that, that's fantastic that we have these, you know, a variety of spectrum of great content on Twitter is what I'll say. to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that not all scientific fields I find are on Twitter, but something about the openness and the, the open sourceness and the computationalness of people in genomics, they find their way to Twitter. Yeah. That's for sure. We should make a, a new website <laughs> just for science. Like people can go there. Hey, that would be cool. A new science Facebook. <laughs> yeah, but it wouldn't survive. <laughs> like you need, <laughs> no, probably not. You need a lot of consumers. Wow. Hello, and that was Gareth today at DNA Geeks. We talked about genomics and related subjects in this podcast. You can follow us at learnwithhold.com where we have new email content. Subscribe to it every Monday new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog content every Thursday. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and we're on iTunes, Google Play, all those things. Basically, anywhere there's, if your device connects to the internet, (laughs) you'll be able to find us. Thank you again for joining me today, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.